going to be reading from verses 18 to the end of the chapter. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is powerful, that it is mighty, that it is able to expose our hearts both to the realities of things that we believe that are not true, but also to the reality of truth so that we might see and understand and know your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your ways, your law, O Lord, that we might serve you, that we might be protected from falling into ill harm, and that we might show forth your glory and fame in our lives. Would you bless us as this group of people gathers together? Would you bless those, Lord, who may not know you this morning? Their hearts would be open to hear. And for those of us who have been walking with you and do know you, Lord, would you once again ignite our hearts to see and love and cherish the great gift of grace and mercy which your word has brought to us. We thank you for all your many blessings that you have granted to us as your people. And we ask that you would use your word today to show those forth to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. And the flood Noah, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Now, I know for many of you, if you were to go and look at this passage, or if you, if you uh, even look in your, in your Bibles at this passage and, and things of that nature, many times it will say, uh, Noah's drunkenness, or Noah's sin, or Noah's nakedness. And all those things have a place to be discussed in this passage, but what I want to be careful as, as we begin to look at this passage is that we don't get so caught up in the microscope of this passage that we lose the telescope, if you will, aspects of this passage. What we're doing here, this is kind of a transitional passage, we're moving out of the flood narrative into the rest of the book of Genesis and beyond. And what the text is now beginning to, to do and what Moses is doing for the people of Israel, and we, maybe we need to come back and remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Noah didn't write this. Adam didn't write this. Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, they didn't write this either. Moses is writing this and, and telling the history of how the children of Israel got to the place that they are. As they stand there, ready to enter into the promised land. So we need, to under, we need to keep that in our mind and understand that, that there is the microscope of what can we see in this passage, and there are some things to be seen here, and we're going to look at those, but we need to keep in the back of our minds the telescoping part of that. And that's why the title this morning is Lord of the Nations, 
Because what we're really seeing here is an explanation of how the three sons from whom all the rest of the peoples of this world have come from, how they got to be where they are. It's God as the Lord of Noah and his three sons, the Lord of the nations. This is how the nations begin to be formed. We're going to go to Babel next week and discuss what happens there and how that's... Um, but I want you to understand that chapter 10 is not irrelevant. I'm just not going to cover it because I'm hoping between the two things, the two bookends, if you will, of chapter 10, we're going to see all that's going on there. This particular set of verses is showing you the realities. And we're seeing, partly in this verse, the fulfillment of what God commanded Noah and his offspring to do. And that was to go forth, be scattered abroad, and to fill the earth. And we see that beginning to happen. We see that because we know that they did that, and we see that, that his three children have children. They have offspring. And that's what chapter 10 begins to show us, is that all these peoples that come from them, we need to see that. We need to understand that. We also need to understand here that in this context that we're looking forward to what's going to happen in chapter 12. We're looking forward to Abraham. And we're going to see as this passage unfolds that there's some, some specific things that happen here that affect why God picks Abraham and what's happening there. So there's a lot here in this text. There's no way we can cover it all, but we're at least going to make an attempt to get at some of the, the bigger issues that hopefully help us both in understanding this passage and what God's doing, but also in our day-to-day -day lives. One of the things I want us to see in this passage is it begins to deal with an understanding of God that is amazing. It begins to show us issues of service versus domination, protection versus exploitation, care versus abuse, and scattering and division for the sake of salvation, not to be able to be segregated from others who are not like us. What we see in this passage is not a defense of slavery, even though this passage has often been abused in that way. We also do not see in this passage this notion that there are some groups of people that are better than others. In fact, I would argue that what we're actually seeing here is a complete different way of understanding things, and in fact, almost the exact opposite, as I just laid out. Not domination, but care and watching over people. The last thing I want us to, to remind you of as we introduce this is, remember the promise that was made the last time we saw cursings and blessings, the great promise of Genesis 3.15, that God would bring one who would crush the head of the serpent, that we see this seed conflict going on all the way through, and that's what's happening here too. And we need to understand that because one of the things we need to understand is you can't say, because I'm of this lineage or this lineage, I'm protected from producing seed of the serpent. And in fact, what we see is, as righteous as Noah is, he's not protected from sin, and he's not protected from producing offspring that is antithetical to God himself. And that's pretty sobering for all of us as we look at this passage. So let's look at this. I have three... Um, hopefully just straightforward points because I want us just to be able to get right into it. The three points are the uncovering, the covering, and the curse and blessing. So let's begin to dig in and see what's going on. What are the things we see in this passage after verses 18 and 19 which show us that the people began to be dispersed or scattered? 
is this idea that Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. Now some have discussed whether or not there were such things as vineyards before. It is interesting that this particular understanding of, of, of creating vineyards and that kind of stuff comes from this region where the ark is understood to have rested. So it is interesting historically that we know that that type of, of activity of, of creating wine and, and growing vineyards um, went on in, in, in that uh, particular region. What I think we should see from this is that there is an advance in time and there is an advance in technology. Whatever it is, Noah begins to advance things. Once again, we start to see this advancement of time because by this time as they've gotten off the ark, there's been some amount of time that's taken place. They begin to scatter, they begin to multiply, they begin to do these things, and offspring has been raised up. And during this time, Noah has begun to develop some technological advancements and he now is, is not only growing grapes, but is fermenting them into wine. We then see what happens here. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now there are those who want to immediately jump on this and, and you get a long list of discussions of the ills of alcohol. Men and women, I want to say this to you with all humbleness. For every verse that someone can come up with that says alcohol's bad, I can show you a verse that says it's good. Wine is viewed as a sign of the new covenant. It is viewed as a good thing, as something to be enjoyed. It's also warned against repeatedly that it's abuse, that it's used in bad ways, that it's used to subdue people. Habakkuk talks about the whole use of wine in order to expose someone, to get them to expose themselves. So exploitation, using it in evil ways. What we need to see in this passage is not some kind of morality trip against alcohol, but rather an understanding that even good things that God has given to us can be abused and can lead us into acting in foolish ways. The main point of this text is not even Noah's getting drunk and being naked. The main point of this text is rather what his son does. And that then, if we kind of keep that in mind, we start to see what's really being uncovered. The, the obvious thing we see in this passage is that Noah gets drunk and apparently throws off his cloak and is laying in his tent completely naked. His nakedness is exposed. Now some have wanted to say that there is this notion of something more has to be going on here. When Ham sees his father's nakedness, maybe it's in the idea of Leviticus, where the idea of seeing your father's nakedness was seeing your father's wife or having relations with your father. We know that Reuben, later on in the book of Genesis, Reuben does have relations with his mother, and he's outcast because of that. We, we know that there are those kind of thinkings going on, but the real question is, is that can we really come to terms with this text by having to read things into it, or can we just let it stand for what it says? What it says is, is that Ham saw his father naked. Now, if there's more to be said to this, then I would venture to say that you'd have to have the text lead you to that conclusion. And I'll say more about why I don't believe there's anything more going on than merely this. Ham looked on his father's nakedness. He didn't just look at him and go, oh, dad's naked. What the text tells us is he leered at his father. Now, some have wanted to say he leered at his father in a lustful way. Maybe. The text doesn't tell us that. What the text tells us is he looked on his father and he went out and he made fun of his father with his brothers. He did not honor 
his father. In fact, he dishonored his father. In fact, what he did was he abused his father. What he did was he had fun at his father's expense. What he did was his father made a bad choice, made a wrong decision, was laying there in his foolishness, and rather than honoring his father and caring for his father and love covering a multitude of sins, Ham instead uses his dad for his own good pleasure and his own good fun. He goes out and mocks him to his brothers. Now, the reason why in the West we have such a hard time accepting that that's all that's going on here is because we don't really honor anybody. We don't honor anything. In fact, we think it's our mantled right to always be dishonoring and deconstructing and tearing things down. And I think what we need to see here, in some real sense, adult children as well as little children and youth, is that this text, if it does nothing else, it points out to us the seriousness and severity of not honoring your parents. That there are long-term consequences that come from that. I don't think it's any mistake that in the Ten Commandments, after you have the first four commandments that have to do with God, the very first one is not do not murder, it's not do not commit adultery. It's not do not steal. It's do not, not do not covet. The very next one is honor your father and mother. And Ham completely disregards that understanding and idea. And I think it's serious that we look at that. What we see in the uncovering of Ham, he's being exposed, is that he takes, his fa- takes advantage of his father He exploits his father's condition. He abuses a situation. What I want us to then see is, is that in real sense, if you think little of the parents that God has given you, you will probably think little of the God who gave gave them. That's just the reality. And what we see in Ham is a disregard for his father Noah and apparently a disregard for God as well, as will be seen in his descendants. They spread out and become a very licentious and godless people in the sense of the one true God. From Ham comes Egypt. From Ham comes the Babylonians. From Ham comes the Canaanites. Think about history. Think about the Israelites. Think about why this becomes incredibly important because these people groups play an integral role in redemptive history to the Israelites. And so what we see in Ham is this reality. Now, why do I say, the second point then is the covering, why do I say that all it is, as if that's all it is, is that Ham is dishonoring his father. He hasn't done anything to him. He hasn't sexually molested him. He hasn't done anything to his wife. None of that has taken place. I think it's simply the fact that he looks on his father and does not cover his father. It's because look at the remedy. What's the remedy? How simple is the remedy? The two other brothers put a cloak on their shoulders and they walk backwards and they cover their father. That's it. That's the remedy. Noah no longer remains exposed. 
If there was more going on, don't you think there'd be more necessary remedy to be said here? The point is, Noah screwed up. He got drunk. He made a fool of himself. And he lay there exposed, and his son dishonored him. That's what's going on there. Now, hopefully what you're starting to see is the tension of this text. For those that were in Sunday school this morning, we're starting to get used to the tension of the text. These, these difficult texts. Okay, let's back up. Let's roll it back to this. Noah is a righteous man. God says that Noah is righteous in his eyes. This is a guy that Hebrews says is a good guy. Peter picks up on him and says he was a preacher of righteousness. How do we deal with what's happened with Noah? What I want you to begin to see is this. Sin inhabits the best of people. Sin inhabits the best of people. And it makes them do foolish, sinful things. Noah has done a foolish and sinful thing. Something that Scripture prohibits. And we have to come to terms with that. Because see, it starts to bring us into the reality of everyday life. Everyday life is this. You and I struggle. You and I sin. You and I don't do it all right. And if we can't begin to see how Scripture over and over and over again gives us these wonderful human beings that in many ways we ought to seek to emulate them in their character and in their attitude and in their actions. We also need to see the freedom we begin to have because they're not perfect either. They screw up, sometimes in major ways. And we need to be able to see that. It gives us comfort and hope. It doesn't excuse what they do or excuse what we do. It rather tells us that there must be a remedy for the fact that we can't do it all right because Noah didn't either. Moses didn't either. David, King David, didn't either. What we're seeing repeatedly throughout the Scriptures is good people, quote-unquote, doing bad things. And bad things happening to those people. Difficult things happening. Wrestling things happening. Now the interesting thing is, and I don't want to spoil it too much because we'll get to it in a minute, there's something happening here though that's incredible. There's something happening here that's amazing. Because Noah's about to speak prophetically. Noah's about to say something profound and what this text, in some ways, it drives us in our own hope to understand, and this is where we kind of can become microscopic, if we will, looking at this text specifically, is how does Noah wake up and understand what his son did to him and then say these things? How is what he's saying not just being angry? Well, I'll get that little brat. Oh, you want to laugh at me? Well, cursed be your son. That's not at all what's happening in this text. To do that to this text is to violate what Moses is recording here. What Moses is recording is how things came to be. What happened? How did we get where we are? 
What's really happening here is that Noah is going to speak prophetically. How could he do that? I want you to think about this, parents. You've been here. We all have been here, but this is particularly apparent. How many of us have blown it royally in front of our kids and personally struggle to think, how will I ever correct them or say anything else to them that needs to be said, given the fact that I've blown it so bad? I mean, I'm exposed. They saw me. See, we've all been there. We've either been there because our kids did something they we sh surely should have corrected and we remain silent because that's our nature. We just don't say anything. We just want to keep the steady flow of things going. And so we fail to speak into our children's lives in a way they should be spoken to. We see that sin in David, right? It said that he, he did not correct his children the way he should have. Wasn't that he didn't set before them an example of what scripture doesn't commend him for is the fact that he did not, he didn't speak to them when they needed it. Same thing's true of Eli, the priest. Never corrected his sons. There's also those who set before their children an example or say things which, you know, you're not surprised when you say that and the next thing you know, your child says that. You're going, whoever, t oh. And your mouth is shut. What amazingly happens in this passage is that Noah's mouth is not shut. How do we come to terms with that? I think Jim Boyce and others are right when they begin to point us to the covering that there's more being shown forth here than just merely that two sons acted honorably towards their father and covered him with a cloak. It is the fact it's pointing us to something bigger and that is that Noah sensed the covering of the Lord, that his sin wasn't his undoing, that he somehow wasn't disqualified from continuing to be the father, the patriarch of this family, because he'd screwed up. That didn't mean you're out. The issue was, how would Noah respond? And what we see is that Noah responds with a curse and a blessing. And we'll see even in that blessing itself in just a moment when we move to that point that he's showing us something about his view of God because of how he blesses and who he blesses. But first, let's finish up with this whole notion of covering. What we see then is this, that Ham does not cover his father's indiscretion. Ham does not cover his father's sin. Ham does not care for his father. And I want to say this to you children, and I want to say this to myself as a child who has living parents. Much time is spent on condemning our parents for their failures. They didn't do this and they didn't do that. And they screwed up here and they screwed up there. And they weren't able to do this. And if they'd just known better here, and I'm so glad I know better. And I've done this. To my shame, I've done this. This text clearly needs to shut our mouths and drive us to a sense of humility. That's not to say it's okay when parents do wrong things. You did not hear me say that. I'm saying that our attitude should strive when our parents have screwed up to cover them up. That's what we see Shem and Japheth do. They cover their father's sin by their actions. They don't look on it to condone it. They don't look at it to point it out. They turn their backs and they walk in. And that's difficult. Have you ever tried to coordinate with somebody else to walk backwards 
through a tent where you don't know where the person is and you can't look at them and you're trying to feel your way backwards, tripping over camel saddles and everything else that may have been going on, trying to get to wherever this man is and finally feeling his foot and going, okay, that's a foot or that's a leg or that's a knee or that's an arm and a hand and try, I want you to think about it. not easy. It's not easy to give our parents a break. It's not easy when they've wounded us deeply. It's not easy for a parent to deal with a child who has wounded them deeply and abused them and exposed them as Ham did to his father. This is a hard passage. It's, it's laying us bare right where we live. But we see this covering that's being provided. The last point that I want to look at is the curse and the blessing. It's wrong, as I've already said, to see this curse as Noah being spiteful or vindictive towards his son or towards his grandchild. That is a wrong way to look at this. We see this as a statement of prophecy that shows how the rest of this section of Genesis will work out and see its flow through the rest of redemptive history. That's really what's going on. We're being given a lens through this to see how the rest of history plays itself out. One of the questions we might rightly ask ourselves is, why is Canaan cursed and not Ham? I mean, what did Canaan do? It's his father who's in there making issues about what, what's going on with this Canaan thing. Well, I think... Um, Dr. Wenham does us some helpfulness and and basically I think he kind of combines several different views and says all these kind of have a part in it. None of them are sufficient answering it to itself, but I'm going to give you why Canaan and not Ham. First, Ham had earlier been blessed by God. And there's a sense in which Noah can't go back and undo God's blessing on Ham. Ham was blessed. God blessed Ham and said... All these sons go out and be fruitful. So there's a sense in which we need to see that, that God's blessing of him has some sway in this passage. It's not just passing words when God says, I bless this person. We're going to see this played out later on, aren't we, when we get to Jacob and Esau? Right? J- Jacob goes in and steals his brother's blessing, and his father says, I- I've already given him that blessing. I can't give you that blessing. I blessed him. Well, that's not a condoning of the fact that Jacob was a scoundrel and lied. But it is the reality that that has power, that God honors that, and there's, there's something going on there. The second thing is that there's this idea of mirroring punishment. Ham was Noah's youngest son. Who does he curse? Ham's youngest son. So this idea of mirroring, this is what my youngest son did, I will let him live with his youngest son being cursed. He acted cursed, his youngest son is cursed. Canaan. The third point is the children of Ham, and especially Canaan, seem to embody the sinful pattern of their father. In fact, they not only embody it, they advance it. Sodom and Gomorrah which is not that far in the distance of Genesis, are descendants of Canaan. The descendants of Sodom and Gomorrah are descendants. All the Canaanites, all that group of people descend from Canaan. And as I've already told you, in some of your Bibles it'll say that one of his sons was Mitzrayim, one of his sons was Cush. Those are basically 
that's Egypt. Mitzrayim is basically Egypt. That's how we translate that. That's, that's how it's spoken of in Hebrew. So his, he was the father of Egypt, father of Cush, going towards Ethiopia and other places like that. We see that all this, father of the Babylonians, because part of that group goes towards the east. That's who this people group are. And we know they were notorious for their practices in the way they believed and operated and lived. And so we see that maybe all of those things are happening there. And the last one is then, in other words, they are cursed because Ham, their father, their federal head, if you will, basically plunged them by his sin into a continuation of their own sin, which is ultimately going to be judged. Which sounds rather familiar because that's exactly where we find ourselves in the notion that Adam's original sin is on us along with all our own actions. Because we sin plenty all by ourselves. And we're accountable for it all. And in the same way, we see that being worked out in this passage, especially towards Canaan. Now, those are things that you can wrestle with and ponder as you look at that curse. And there are more questions, as I told you. There's a lot to talk about in this passage. I hope it stimulates you to continue to think and, and, and wrestle with it. But here are some things that go on then in that blessing that we see. Notice what he says in verse 26. Notice who he blesses. I think that's powerful. And that begins to now come in and show us how Noah's processing. Blessed be the Lord of Shem. Blessed be the Lord of Shem. That's powerful. Noah is looking to the Lord and says, Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the God who remembers His people. Blessed be the God who puts a bow in the sky to demonstrate His commitment and love to His people. Blessed be that Lord. And see, I think that becomes the crux in the personal level of this is that Noah looks at God as his covering. And therefore, he's able not to be shut up or quieted by his choice, by his decision. He rather is able to continue to act, not because he's perfect, not because he's got it all together, but despite his lack, God lacks nothing. And so he operates in the strength and the courage which comes from a person who believes themselves and knows themselves to be covered by God. And that's what I believe is going on here in this passage as he begins to speak out these words and as he begins to particularly look at Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Part of what I think we see going on here is that same idea that happens back in Genesis 4.26 where it tells us that people first began to be called by the name of the Lord. Now, many of your translations will say that was the first time that people began to call on the name of the Lord, but I think the better translation is the notion of that's where people began to be called by the name of the Lord. This group of people begins to be seen as those who are called by God's name. And in fact, we're going to see as it works out, Abraham is a descendant of Shem. Isaac is a descendant of Shem. Jacob is a descendant of Shem. David is a descendant of Shem. And David's greater son is a descendant of Shem. And that would be the person of Jesus. 
what we begin to see here, and what we begin to see in this blessing, is that Noah is not so much looking towards his offspring to help. He's looking to the Lord through his offspring to bring deliverance. What we then see is this, and what I think we see, many commentators wrestle, and I will just tell you this, if you get into this part of this section, you'll see commentators wrestling. Where does this find its ultimate explanation? Its ultimate, where is it that we see Shem ruling over the Canaanites and doing all these things, and Japheth dwelling in his tents and all of this, and so they try to find historically where this happens and how that exactly works. But here's the notion that's going on as we see that prophecy ultimately being fulfilled. I want you to think about this. If Jesus is ultimately in view in this passage, as I contend that he is, what's really going on here is this. Who has been grafted in? Who are Japheth's offspring? They are the Gentiles. That's where Japheth goes. All the Semitic peoples, for the most part, come from Shem and from his, that people group. All the descendants of Japheth begin to be those people who are Gentiles, who spread out all over what we would call primarily the West and the North. And so what we start to see is, is that if we start to see an ingathering of Japheth to dwell in the tents of Shem, whose tents would that be ultimately looking at? It would ultimately be looking at the tents of Abraham, the tents of Isaac, the tents of Jacob. And isn't that exactly Paul's point in Romans? That the Gentiles who were not part of the original tree have come to be grafted in to that tree. <coughs> so do you begin to see how powerful this little piece of Scripture, which so many people just tend to hop right on or want to harp on Noah's sin and not see the grander thing that's going on here. That what we ultimately see here is this hope coming from this very disappointing passage. What we see then in conclusion in this passage is this idea. Judgment for sin is real. There are real consequences to choices people make. Noah had to live the rest of his days knowing what had happened here. We can't, we can't remove ourselves and say, well, he must have been just joyously giddy over this episode. A son he raised in his own house has failed and has produced a curse that will see itself realized later on down the road. We also see, though, the fact that there's something greater going on here in this covering. What I want us to then to look at is, is that judgment for sin is real, but Christ came and took on the role of the most sinful See, what you really need to see going on here is when Jesus shows up on planet Earth, He doesn't come and say, look at me, I am a son of Shem. Look at me, come to me all you Gentiles because, you know, I'm going to do you a good deed. What we ultimately see in Jesus is He takes the place of Canaan. What we see Jesus is He doesn't come to rule over he comes to be the servant of. What we see is Jesus taking the role of the most despicable, the most gross, the most sinful. 
Not because he ever committed a sin. Not because he ever did anything wrong. It's exactly because he didn't that makes what he did so profound. He comes and he stands on the cross, nailed to it, and we're told that he who knew no sin became sin. He was fully laid out as the worst of the worst. And that's the first thing we need to see as we conclude in this passage. The second thing is, is that Jesus on the cross was uncovered and exposed. Many of us, if, if we've seen pictures or watched movies, rarely did they get it right. Jesus was stripped completely naked. It was ultimate humiliation. He was stripped naked, hanging on that cross. And what we need to see is that Jesus was willing to be exposed, to be made the fool, to be made a mockery of, so that we might be covered in the righteousness which only He can give us. The final thing I want us to see then is this, that Jesus, we're told, was cursed. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was hung on a tree and exposed Himself to the curse to where His Father turned away from Him and would not look on Him and covered Him in darkness so that we who are sinners who fail every day might be covered in His righteousness, might be covered in His glory, might be surrounded by His goodness. That's what we see happening as this passage reaches its full climax in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one, this descendant, this promised one comes and becomes that which all of us are so that we might become what He truly is. The righteousness of God. Beloved of the Lord. And I pray that God will allow you to see that and it will give you hope and encouragement in the days ahead, in your struggles, in your failures, and in the joys of seeing God triumph in your midst as He transforms us into the people of God He's called us to be. Amen.